Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and I'm excited to be joined today by Miles Taylor and Charlie Dent, two people who are leading the movement for a retreat from Trumpism in the Republican Party. Miles is the co-founder of Renew America, which we'll talk more about in a minute. He's the former chief of staff in the Department of Homeland Security and author of the New York Times bestseller, A Warning. Miles, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Jenna, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Now, Charlie is the McCourtney Institute for Democracy's Fall 2021 Visiting Fellow. He served seven terms in Congress and is now Executive Director of the Aspen Institute Congressional Program and a CNN political analyst. Charlie, welcome back to Democracy Works. This is your second time on the show. Thank you, Jenna. Great to be with you and Miles. So, you know, before we dive into some of the specifics about Renew America and what you are working on, I wanted to just sort of set the stakes a little bit. You know, the two of you come from different generations. You sort of came of age politically at different times, but ended up in the same party. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what the Republican Party means to you. You know, what is it when we're talking about preserving the party or its identity moving forward? What does that mean to you? So we'll start with you on that one, Miles. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, actually, I don't know if Charlie knows this, but (laughs) one thing that's interesting about our intertwined stories, we may be from different generations, but as I was coming of age in the party, it was sort of propitious timing because it was uh, Charlie's first term in Congress. So I was a congressional page on the floor of the House of Representatives in 2004, 2005. So I was actually there to see Charlie sworn in. And so, you know, in the arc of history, I think uh, that was interesting because that Republican Congress really had an impact on, you know, my worldview of what, you know, cooperation, collaboration looked like. And yeah, there were, you know, there were fights between the Democrats and the Bush administration, but largely things were getting done in that time period. And Charlie's class that came in of members of Congress was a pretty reasonable class of members that deeply impacted my perceptions of how the GOP and Congress were supposed to work, that there were differences, but ultimately, you know, folks reached across the aisle to get things done, even when it was hard. You know, then both of us lived, you know, the trauma of the pre-Trump years and the Trump years. You know, Charlie was a member and, and, and I was a House staffer. And I think we saw that environment change dramatically and become hyperpolarized. And now I didn't think that in the period just before Trump became president, it could get more polarized than that. But it has. And it's entered this new period where it's almost about celebrity. And it's sort of an angry celebrity ethos that surrounds a lot of these Republicans that not only keeps them divided from working with their other members of Congress, but but creates true personal vitriol between them. Didn't think it would get to that level. And of course, that's one of many reasons why, you know, I, I've jumped in to to try to, you know, reset the GOP through the Renew America movement. But we're, we're doing a range of other pro-democracy things, which we can get into in a minute. And by way of caveat, Charlie advises us on the C3 side and not the political side, which we'll talk about in a little bit more detail. Yeah. 
Great. Yeah. So Charlie, you know, what about you? And Miles was just talking about your role in Congress. You know, what drew you to the GOP and, and, you know, how did your feelings change as you got into Congress and continued on throughout your political career? I grew up in a Republican Party in Pennsylvania that had people like, you know, Governor Bill Scranton, you know, who you might remember ran for president against Barry Goldwater, lost the nomination in 1964. I might have had a different outcome, perhaps, if, uh, you know, had we nominated uh, Bill Scranton, uh, senior. Uh, and uh, so we had uh, Bill Scranton. And then out of that came people like Dick Thornburg and Tom Ridge and John Hines and Arlen Specter, all of whom, uh, Mark Schweiker, I could go on. Uh, but people, that was the party I grew up in, I was comfortable in. Richard Schweiker was our senator as well. I should mention Hugh Scott. So this is the party that I grew up in uh, that, you know, in many respects, is pretty pragmatic, pretty practical, in many respects, uh, fairly centrist or moderate. And and obviously, you know, the party has changed. You know, he's, Tip O'Neill used to say that all politics is local. Well, that's really no longer true. In fact, much of local politics has become nationalized. Right. And so I guess for both of you, you know, at what point did you start to see that, OK, this is starting to change or this is not the party that I know? When did those kind of alarm bells start to go off for you? I'm, I'm happy to jump in. I mean, look, the, here's the here's the biggest alarm bell. And, and I don't want to overplay the Miles and Charlie intertwined destinies. But but I have to on this one. I mentioned that, you know, being a page on the House floor, that was, you know, when people ask me what's the best job you ever had. It was just being a 16 year old kid working on the floor of the House of Representatives. That was the best job I ever had sitting there at the page desk, you know, getting to watch the comings and goings of the greatest democracy in the world. Somewhat ironically, that desk was actually the last resort against insurrectionists storming the floor of the House of Representatives. You see those pictures on January 6th of the officers with their guns drawn in the House chamber defending the chamber. Well, the desk they moved in front of the door was the desk that I used to sit at. That was an emotional gut punch for me to see the literal symbol of the thing that inspired me about democracy as sort of like the last resort before insurrectionists stormed the House floor. So if there was a five alarm fire, it was that moment. And it was evident to anyone watching that in real time that it had been instigated by the leader of our party, by the then president of the United States, Donald Trump. And and I absolutely think that was the lowest point for me as a Republican. And the lowest point for me as a citizen in a civic sense is to see that image. And it's still hard to think about to this day. Now, the warning signs flashed much earlier. I actually would say it was, you know, during the congressman's, you know, early-ish in his tenure in Congress, we started to see uh, some very libertarian-leaning members of Congress elected in, in subsequent classes that eventually became what was known as the Tea Party movement. That really started as an ideological insurgency within the party. As I note, a lot of those folks were libertarian. They wanted a much smaller government role in society. And it was sort of uh, the debate that you've seen play out in the Republican Party before about what direction it's going to go ideologically. But in the span of about 10 years, that Tea Party movement was hijacked by populist forces and went from a small insurgency within the Republican Party to a dominant force within the party during that time period and and was co-opted by Donald Trump. That's really when we started to see the warning signs, although I'll say House leadership at the time and the congressman remembers this, you know, were somewhat dismissive of these folks. Um, and, and of course, we're dismissive at their peril because ultimately, you know, it cost a number of House leaders their jobs because they didn't see the direction that this movement was going. That, that's for me when I saw the warning signs. And, and I think for all of us, 
the shock of Trump's rise from number 17 of 17 in the primaries, you know, kind of dead last back in the pack and his steady bulldozing of the primary field in 2015, 2016. That's probably when it really broke into the open. That's when I argue that the GOP civil war really began. Mm -hmm. And then it suddenly ended when Trump became president. There was sort of a detente because they suppressed a lot of dissent. And now you're seeing, you know, the GOP civil war break back open. But of course, Mm. the rational side is much smaller, much more scrappy and and is currently, I would argue, in a not in a winning position. I do want to go to Renew America and what the two of you and many others across the country are doing to, you know, play your part in advocating for your side. And as you've described it, this GOP civil war. So, Miles, why don't you tell us what the organization is for listeners who might not be familiar with it? Yeah. So Renew America really has its origins in that day that we were talking about, January 6th. I mean, at that time, I was running an organization called Repair, the Republican Political Alliance for Integrity and Reform. You know, Charlie was a part of that, along with other former Republican members of Congress, cabinet secretaries, governors. And then another pro-democracy organization called Stand Up Republic, which was run at the time by Evan McMullen. We came together after the insurrection and combined forces really with the goal of protecting the country against political extremists and trying to fortify a pragmatic and principled center in this country. So we combined and launched the Renew America movement really with that goal of restoring a common sense coalition in our politics. And the way to do that, we assess, is what I would call a diversified pro-democracy portfolio, right? So if, if our organization, if, you know, if we're investing our time and our resources in defending our democratic institutions, we're diversifying that across short-term, medium-term, and long-term investments. What are those investments? They are people, policy, and process. On the people side, that's the political side of our organization, we are investing in pro-democracy candidates on the right and the left. So good Republicans who've stood up for the truth, put country over party, people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, but also people on the center left, you know, representatives like Alyssa Slot in Michigan or Abby Spanberger in Virginia, Democrats who've stood up against political extremism from the far left. So we want to make sure those people don't get taken out in this hyperpolarized environment, and we want to see them reelected. So we're investing in those good, unifying pragmatists in Congress on the people side. In the medium term, on the policy side, we're investing in advocating for good policies that protect our democracy. Things like protecting the right to vote, making voting easy, free, fair, and secure, and also safeguarding the guardrails of our democracy, if you will. So there's legislation in Congress called POTA. It's the Protect Our Democracy Act that's focused on really reinforcing things like the role of inspectors general and making it more difficult for you know the White House to abuse the pardon power and a range of different reforms. So in the medium term, we're active in that space to try to reinforce those guardrails of our democracy. And then in the long term, we're investing in the process side of our democracy, actually trying to make American politics more competitive and to introduce more choices. What do I mean by that? Right now, the two parties have sort of a stranglehold on the process. It makes it really hard for third parties and independent candidates to emerge and be successful. But we know from digging into the data that people desperately want 
alternatives. In fact, 50% of Americans now say they are political independents. They are neither Democrats or Republicans. That's the largest number that the Pew surveys have ever recorded. So there is consumer demand, if you will, for alternatives. And so in the long run, we want to invest in opening up the democratic process more fully so that there can be greater competition and choice. So that's what RAM is focused on is those three P's, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. people, uh, policy and process. And, uh, you know, but we've got a we've got a high hill to climb. Right. And, you know, it's interesting to think about uh, there. There are lots of folks out there talking about sort of the problem of America's two-party system. I know, for example, Andrew Yang has been active in this space, and there are political scientists like Lee Drutman who calls it our two-party doom loop. You know, how do you think about the whether or not to take that plunge? You know, how do you know, or, you know, what are some of the signs you're looking for to know whether you really do have enough of a coalition of the folks like you were just talking about to really make a go at a third party, while it seems like there's also some interest in keeping the Republican Party, you know, and thinking about what that looks like in a post-Trump world, whenever that might be. I mean, this concept of a renewer, it's, you know, we're, we're not creating a third party at the moment. You can think of the word renewer as almost like a modifier, just like people call themselves Tea Party Republicans. You know, we want a renewed Republican to be the opposite of that. We want a renewed Democrat to be the opposite of that, or people who are independents as renewers. We want them to see that as, you know, synonymous with being a principled pragmatist. And as Charlie notes, you know, there's real demand for folks to find this community. I mean, right now, millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans report feeling politically homeless. And so what we're trying to create really is a tribe of the tribals united around shared principles. And, you know, in the long run, that may mean the establishment of a third party or multiple third parties to make our system more competitive. But on the political side of this, where, where Charlie doesn't advise us, you know, our strategy in this cycle going into 2022 is frankly to team up with the Democrats to have electoral effect. In other words, to deny an unreformed Republican Party majority leadership in Washington, D.C. We think right now the GOP has been too corrupted by you know, pro-Trump extremism that there's a real danger in a House Republican majority in particular at the moment. And so it, you know, we're better off with some you know, moderate Dems uh, winning and tipping the balance uh, of power that direction while protecting reformist Republicans who really want to try to fix the party. So that's our political strategy at the moment. And it, frankly, it's an uncomfortable one. I mean, you know, most of us are lifelong Republicans who never imagined teaming up with our political rivals, the Democrats. But look, country's got to come before party in this instance. And so in this cycle, we think that's uh, what needs to happen. Yeah. You know, looking over the principles on your site, it's great for people like me to see pluralism and the rule of law and everything that like the democracy nerds of the world get really excited about in this platform. But I wonder if you thought at all or if you have plans to kind of speak to some of the more bread and butter issues that, you know, people outside of the academy or the, you know, insider political circles tend to be concerned with. Yeah, this is probably where I disagree with Miles. You know, I actually think a divided government would be a good thing for the country right now. I do believe that. I, you know, had Donald Trump not intervened in Georgia the way he did, you'd probably have a Republican Senate today and we'd have a little bit more balance. I just wanted to say like bread and butter issues, 
Now, I feel very strongly right now, and I voted for Joe Biden, and I'm glad I did. But at the same time, I would argue that he has misread his mandate rather significantly on matters of the economy. I feel strongly that uh, this was not a mandate to go big. This was a mandate to stabilize and normalize the ship of state, bring some sense of normalcy back to the functioning of government, deal with the COVID crisis as an adult, you know, uh, unlike you know, the previous president. And I think that, yeah, I think that this was a, a, almost a vote for incrementalism. You know, the, the go big agenda, that was Bernie's. And he lost, last I checked, in the Democratic primary. And I think that you know, by go, going forward with, a, with a massive spending plan beyond, you know, not, not the infrastructure bill, which I think is a good bill, and they should, they should have voted on it in August, frankly. They should have passed it in the law, take the win. Uh, but the but I think this is a, an enormous blunder as if and to hear, you know, I just was listening to some folks on television this morning from the left of the Democratic Party talking about how popular this is and how, you know, really we compromise. It was six trillion dollars. You know, that's what they said. It was six trillion, not three point five is the compromise. Well, you know, they're, they're acting as if they're dealing with all this in a vacuum, you know, as if we hadn't spent nearly six trillion dollars to deal with covid as if there had not been a humiliating surrender capitulation in Afghanistan, as if there is not inflationary pressure and shortages of just about everything. And as if, uh, you know, there's that there, there, there's somehow that the American people are all for everything. And I'm, I am just kind of mystified by this. This is not a mandate of the great society of the New Deal. You don't have congressional majorities and you need balance. And I see it right now. I, I can tell you all the problems of the Republican Party being pulled by Trump. I see the Democratic Party right now being pulled. Now, they don't have the anti-democratic forces or the liberal forces you know, that are responsible for the insurrection, but they're still being pulled in a dangerous direction. And I think we need balance in this country that we simply don't have. Divided government forces people to do things uh, that they're not going to like it, but they have to do this like we did on the, uh, the troubled asset program during the financial crisis. Yeah, Republican president, Democratic Congress. And, you know, we did something for the good of the nation, hard as it was. And there was a lot of bad feeling at the time. Sometimes divided government allows you to do some things that you can't do in a unified government. I actually have to jump in and say uh, I, I wanted to, to facetiously say I totally disagree with Charlie, but I actually do agree with him. And, and I think that is that's an answer at the moment. You know, the, the, now I've done it the third time. I'm going to go back to the period where Charlie and I both entered Congress, me as a boy, him as a, as a man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I walked in there on my very first day on the House floor, the parliamentarian looked at me and told me something I will never forget. She said, Congress was not designed to pass laws. Congress was designed to stop bad laws from being passed. And that was a bumper sticker education in really what the democratic process exists to do in a republic like ours. And I think Charlie is absolutely right. The founders intended that if we were so divided as we are now, that the system should grind to a halt until and unless compromise can be achieved. So the process is functioning, frankly, the way it should. Now, you know, Americans are frustrated. They're frustrated that Washington and their view is broken. But the reality, especially if they understand their political process and their republic, is not that Washington is broken, but that they are broken, that we are broken at a community level. We are divided. We don't go to certain barbecues because we're worried about seeing the MAGA person we don't want to see, or, you know, in other cases, you know, the crazy socialist Bernie person we don't want to see. That is happening foundationally at a community level. And it's being reflected in our Congress as the founders intended. So if we really are to fix it, as insipid as it sounds, it, it's got to begin door to door and it's got to begin 
and our communities. And there is precedent for that. We have gone through periods of political upheaval, turmoil and division in the past and have overcome them. You can go back just to the 20th century and look at the polls and see different periods of intense political divide that that were mended. So, So this is possible, but it's certainly challenging. I want to come back to something you were talking about earlier, Miles, with some of the pro-democracy parts of this platform and this movement. As I've said, we have a very reform-minded kind of nerdy audience on the show. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk more specifically about some of the reforms that you're considering or, you know, what changes might fit under this umbrella that you're creating. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in the, in the long run, you know, the democratic form reforms that we need to undertake. I'm going to, you know, make a somewhat hyperbolic statement here, but I think they are the most important public policy issues of the 21st century. I think reforming our democracy here at home, we're going to look back and see it as, as again, the, the watershed movement of this century because of the intense political pressures that we're seeing, not just in America, but around the world, really putting strain on democracy. And I go back to that subject of competition and choice. And the simplistic way to explain it to, you know, your friends who aren't the political geeks like us on here is that, you know, they feel like they can basically in the 21st century have anything they want whenever they want. They can do a ride share from whatever company they want, order food and clothes from wherever they want. I mean, there's there's almost unlimited choice and competition in the marketplace right now, unlike any other period in human history. But ironically, the one marketplace, politics, where they expect competition and choice inherently, it's lacking. Because over the decades, over the centuries, you've seen the two major political parties largely cement their position, including through laws that in certain states favor one party over another. So over time, the two-party, not monopoly, two-party duopoly, if you will, has really developed a stronghold on the democratic process in a way that, again, favors certain parties in certain places. That has reduced the amount of choice at the ballot box. And so as consumers or rather voters have become more disaffected, they're increasingly going outside of the process. So one of the alarming data points I would put out there is the University of Chicago poll from a few weeks ago, which found that almost 10% of Americans, nearly 30 million Americans believe that political violence is justified to restore Donald Trump to the White House. That is breathtaking. That is a huge number. And also, when you dig deeper into those numbers, in terms of people who self-identify as being a part of extremist groups or armed militias in the United States, you see a roughly tenfold increase in domestic violent extremism or favorable sentiments towards it over the past four years or so. That's a market increase. But again, it shows in part that people are becoming very frustrated with the democratic process. They don't think it's responsive to their needs. That's not to say that political violence is justified, but we've seen this in other countries. We've seen this in other democracies where people feel like they can't express their voice through peaceful means. They begin to consider other means. That's very dangerous. I think that trend is potentially what could arrest the development of our democracy and prevent us from reaching our 300th birthday. I mean, it's very, very worrying. And so that task of reforming the democratic process in a way to give people voice, I think really is the task of the 21st century. And the ways to do that are are, are very straightforward. It's to introduce reforms like ranked choice voting, which allows people to express uh, for their preferences to be better expressed in the democratic process. It, It allows more types of candidates to emerge and for elections to be more competitive. It's things like 
open primaries and making it easier for voters to go in and vote for or against you know, certain candidates that are running in the primary process. And again, it's changing the laws in many states to make it easier for the creation and success of third parties and independent candidates. So the combination of those reforms, I truly do think, will make our democracy more competitive. And the last thing I'll note on that is it sounds like pie in the sky stuff, but if you compare it to some of the other big reform movements over the past couple of decades, you see how these things move along. One example would be gay marriage. Another would be marijuana legalization. In both cases, 30 years ago, we would have said the majority of U.S. states are not going to adopt gay marriage and they're not going to adopt marijuana legalization. Well, in the former case, we're well on our way there, right? And, and the Supreme Court has upheld it nationwide. We're already, we're, we're there. And in the case of marijuana legalization, agree with it or not, We've gone from just a handful of left-leaning states to, you know, close to a majority of the country approving those reforms. So I, on the Democratic reform side, not that it's the same as those, those are, those are more social issues, but I do see the momentum going that direction. We're seeing a few initial states really pick up those reforms and a whole bunch of nascent efforts in other states. Yeah. So, Charlie, you know, ranked choice voting, open primaries, these are potentially big changes, particularly here in, in Pennsylvania, where we are a closed primary state. What do you make of the prospect of these reforms or, you know, how they would change the landscape moving forward? What do you think? Yeah, I certainly agree with Miles that we should move toward open primaries. I think that would do quite a bit. I, and one of the, I think one of the one of the real challenges in our country, you know, and something that the founders did not envision were primaries. I mean, when you think about it, I, I truly believe that primaries are causing many of uh, much of the dysfunction that we see in America, that it's it's very easy, or it's easier for more fringe candidates to prevail in a multi-candidate field in a closed primary. And, and then they can win the general election because one party's registration is so dominant. And, and I, I've noticed that is a challenge. The primaries don't lend themselves to, to electing more pragmatic folks. Ranked choice voting, I'm certainly open to it. I haven't thought it through as closely as some have. I mean, I can understand the merits of it. It's, it's complex for many, but it's at least, I think that's worth serious consideration. Some states are experimenting with it and we're going to see how, what kind of uh, elected officials uh, they produce. But one thing where I think Miles and I com- are in complete alignment is that, you know, the threats to our, our republic, to our democratic institutions, to our constitutional order are not so much external. Yes, we're all upset with the Russians for their meddling in the 2016 election so so horribly. And, you know, we're all uh, concerned about the adversarial relationship uh, with China and certainly bad actors like Iran. But, you know, the threat is not external. It's internal. It's, it's us. You know, we have to be the ones who believe in our system. You know, as Miles pointed out, there are so many people who think that violence is a, a proper remedy, you know, to uh, you know, political disagreement when, it, when we all know it is not. Now, hell, the definition, and Miles and I were involved in the Homeland Security for a long time. I always thought the definition of terrorism was, you know, uh, using violence to advance a political agenda. That was kind of how we looked at uh, ter- terrorism. And, uh, and, and so we have to get back to, uh, you know, having a greater civil discourse in this country among ourselves. That Every debate now becomes so political, you know, from the wearing of masks to, to getting vaccines. I mean, we're now we're tearing each other apart over things that, you know, most of us thought were fairly non-controversial items or things that might have been established fact. We can't agree as a nation. We don't agree on established facts anymore. You know, truth. 
uh, is, uh, you know, is the casualty. And, you know, hell, we had the President Trump's advisor, Kellyanne Conway, was talking about alternative facts. You know, well, what, what, what are those? I, I thought alternative facts were kind of well, lies. Oh, OK. I mean, so uh, this is what we're up against when we can't agree on the basics. If we can't agree on the facts, you know, how can we then agree on bigger issues? and solve problems. You know, I think as we get closer to the the next election cycle, we're seeing Donald Trump come back on the scene in various ways. So I'm just wondering how each of you are kind of thinking about the severity of what we're up against here in our democracy, but you know, not falling victim necessarily to becoming, you know, so paralyzed or, you know, so scared that you can't really move forward. I guess let's start with you on that one, Miles. How are you thinking about, uh, you know, parsing the kind of reality that we're facing versus, you know, what the media might want us Mm -hmm. to be hyped up about? Well, uh, you know, I'll give a personal example and and not because I want anyone to play the violin for me. They don't need to, but I want to use these examples because they're illustrative of what a lot of other folks are going through is, you know, I I, I mentioned earlier that the GOP civil war was very vitriolic, but, but I do think it's jumped the tracks from vitriol to violence. And we're seeing that throughout our political system is that open discourse is being supplanted by intimidation. I mean, in my case, simply speaking out against the president forced me to leave my home, my job, my relationship. You know, I had to take on a full-time armed bodyguard. As recently as today, I had to change my phone number because it was getting doxxed in MAGA circles and I was getting deluged with phone calls from strangers. I'm fine. I'll be okay. I've got a very good personal protection regimen. But this intimidation has really infected our politics And we see it, you know, forget the Miles Taylors of the world, who cares? The people who are our poll workers, the people who are counting ballots at the county courthouse, these are people who are getting death threats for merely performing the functions of democracy and speaking the truth. That's very concerning to me to see. And, you know, I'll leave it on this note because I want to give Charlie the, the final word. I say to folks that really this is a this is a supply and demand problem. And what do I mean by that? The, the price of dissent is very high at the moment. So anyone who's taken Econ 101 knows that in any marketplace, if the price of something is very high, there are only two ways to bring it down. You either, you either increase, uh, sorry, you decrease demand. If you decrease demand, the price will go down. Well, we don't want to decrease demand for the truth. We want higher demand for the truth. Uh, or you can increase the supply right? that lowers the price of something. So in this case, if there are more people speaking up, more people at a community level willing to speak the truth and, and push back against political extremism, we can lower the price of dissent. And what is encouraging to me is I've seen certainly while working in the Trump administration, it was like getting a PhD in cowardice analytics. You know, I saw a lot of people not speak up. And it was clear that cowardice was contagious. But also, by the end, I saw that courage was pretty contagious. You know, folks like Alex Vindman and others who spoke up, when they stuck their heads up, it made other folks feel like they could do the same. And that's just as true on the national political stage as it is in a community. And so that is the thing that gives me heart, is I do think more and more folks are willing to push back. And it's going to be, you know, grassroots efforts that, that turn our politics around. So I'm, I'm hopeful about that but uh, eager to get the congressman's perspective. Yeah. Well, I guess a couple, the, the perspective on the fact that yeah, people pushing back, I, you know, that was my observation. We should also notice too that uh, 
that Miles was anonymous. He was the, the person who wrote that op-ed that got a lot of attention that there were people. Charlie, you just outed me. We, we were keeping it a secret <laughs> until now. Now, now I'm going to have to go back on the run. <laughs> You've been re-outed. Okay. You've been re-outed. No, and the, the long, but, but the story that I see is that, you know, we need a, a movement in this country to kind of recapture the political center. And it's not an easy thing to do. We all know that. I would just finally uh, maybe just conclude by saying that, you know, our country, uh, you know, is our, and our institutions are rather fragile. We've learned that many, you know, after the insurrection, I mean, we thought, well, okay, this is as bad as it's going to get. That was my initial, re- okay. I can't imagine, you know, after an insurrection, a sedition, you know, this, this assault on this great temple of democracy, you know, that, okay, now this is a seminal moment. Everybody step back. And frankly, I'm concerned that that's not the end. Maybe, I don't want to maybe say the beginning, but maybe we we have to go to yet a darker place before we can find the light. And I hope I'm wrong about that, but I'm fearful that, you know, this, what I like to call these illiberal populist movements, not only in the United States, but throughout the West, we've seen them, Le Pen in France, the alternative for Germany and Germany, you know, uh, some of the... uh, the UKIP party in the UK at the time, we saw that uh, that there are these movements, Orban, you know, in, in Hungary, uh, Poland's got their own liberal movement, Italy, the five star. We have these movements that are gaining momentum and they're transnational. And in many respects, they don't, many of these groups, I won't say all, but many do not respect a free media an independent judiciary, all these very basic fundamental prerequisites for democracy. And finally, you know, what Miles mentioned too, you know, what I'm concerned, when I see, I've dealt with a lot of elections over the years and election officials. And what I found is every one of these election officials, whether Republican or Democrat, county level, state level, they want to run a clean, fair election. They don't want problems. (laughs) You know, the last thing they want to do is become the center of a controversy whether it's because of fraud or some kind of mischief, they don't want problems of any sort. They want to make sure the, uh, that people can vote, they can get through, they get done, and they count them fairly and accurately. You know, everybody's in, in agreement on the outcome. Nowadays, I worry when I see stories about nonpartisan, I'll say Republican uh, election officials, whether it be the Secretary of State in Georgia, or I read about some other folks in states, county officials, I think one in Texas, where she was a Republican being forced to out because you know, she believed in running a free and fair election and the people trying to replace them, you know, have a real agenda. That is that they have an outcome, a predetermined outcome that they have in their minds. And that's a terrible thing uh, for a democracy. If you have people going to those types of positions who have a predetermined outcome, are they going to use those positions to get the outcome they desire? Rather than this is one job where, you know, the outcome is not determined by you, the administrator, it's determined by the people, by the voters. And so I guess that's how I conclude this. And that's probably the scariest thing I've seen out there, you know, in, in recent uh, months. Right. Well, right. So we are heading toward uncertain for sure, perhaps scary times, but I thank both of you for the work that you're doing to stand up for America's institutions and democratic values. And thank you for taking the time today to talk with us about it. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our producer, 
and our editors are Jen Bortz, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Democracy Works is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Learn more at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.